Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. We're in our third message in the Beatitudes. We'll be in Matthew 5. That's where it's at. Uh, you can go look there. We'll be in and around it. It's, it's not a long verse. You could probably memorize it, right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Boop, that's it. So that is the message for today's uh, uh, sermon. But we'll be talking in and around Matthew um, since we've had a couple weeks off, uh, it's, it's good to review a few things to kind of recenter us on uh, where we're at in the Beatitudes. Uh, if you look across the Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where it's kind of the, the most consistently recorded piece of Jesus' early ministry, you see that the Beatitudes are right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. That's right when he kicks things off. Um, you know, the events around that are pretty consistent leading up to that in the, in the scripture right there is the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Then there is the temptation of Jesus. Then there's this period where he's in the Galilee region uh, starting his ministry. He is, you know, doing some teaching. He's calling his disciples. He is essentially doing things that will cause people to gather around him in crowds. So there are people starting to crowd around him, uh, like is common throughout his you know, ministry. People are trying to figure out what he's saying, what he's doing. They're following him around. Um, and he's sort of kicking things off. At that point, he kind of takes the occasion to get up and teach the thing we call the Sermon on the Mount. It is likely the, you know, the first teaching that he did that was recorded down. It says while he was in Galilee, he went around teaching and preaching and doing miracles and things of that nature, but none of those are written down. This is the first time somebody authored what he wrote. You know, in Matthew, it says he got up on a hill. Uh, in Luke, it says he went out on a plane, uh, and the messages are consistent, so we know that they're kind of recording the same uh, events, even though they're from kind of a different perspective. Um, uh, but he got up and, and taught this thing. The first little piece of it is called uh, the Beatitudes. It's kind of these statements that are like Proverbs. And then the whole thing is called uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Those are terms that got added later. You know, you, if you go in and type like Sermon on the Mount into like a Microsoft product, it knows it needs to be capitalized because it's like a popular part of Scripture. Same with the Beatitudes. But we added those terms later. It's not like Jesus got up and said, hey guys, I'm on a mountain now. I'm going to teach this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Write it in your headings. We added those uh, later on to sort of give meaning and, and give a title to it. Um, but th that's, that's where we are. Now, I wanted to take just, just a little bit of time here to share a, kind of a mental perspective I have on this that might help you guys if you know, you're studying this in your community groups uh, after this or you know, studying it at home or trying to follow along with us. And those things are great. It's great if you guys use the... Um, the sermon messages on Sunday is kind of initial discussion topics in your community groups. Like, hey, what did you think about what was said on Sunday? Did, you know, did it speak to you? Did it not? Well, how do you interpret it? Those are all great. Um, when we're in the New Testament, though, it's, it's good, I think, to consider that even though when we talk about it, when I talk about it, you know, I'll say, Jesus is speaking to us when I'm talking about what is written there. And to a large degree, that's true. But initially, he wasn't talking to us at Vail Christian Church 2,000 years ago. He was talking to the Jewish people that were there, and Paul was speaking to the Gentiles and the Jewish people. And they had a certain mental perspective where they were, and both Jesus and then 
Paul and everybody after the crucifixion, both had a specific purpose of what they were teaching. Jesus had his. He was coming on the scene doing what he was going to do. The people were in a certain frame of mind, the Jewish people at that time. And same with after that, Paul gets up and uh, starts the early church, and he was reaching people that had just gone through the thing that Jesus had led them through. And it's good to keep those uh, in mind. You know, it's hard to briefly summarize each one of those, but, you know, Jesus's ministry, you could say, is like, you know, this is three to five years of like him rolling out a completely new vision on what God's people were supposed to be, what we were supposed to look like, and how he was going to save us for himself. He spent that time doing miracles to prove his identity. Uh, he was scrapping with the uh, religious leaders of the time, kind of demonstrating some of the transformation he was taking us through. He, he was meeting with his own apostles in small groups and having personal moments with them. And of course, he was teaching and doing all kinds of things that sort of demonstrated what he was trying to teach and to communicate to the Jewish people of the time. And his teaching very much leaned towards this um, new way of thinking, transformational thing. Um, because what he was doing is, he's rolling out the new covenant. The things that he was saying were completely new and foreign to these people. Uh, you could imagine that um, it, it, was, it was tough for them to hear these things, right? It's like, wait, what are you saying? Um, this, is, this is new. But he taught in a way like with parables. You know, they had individual people in there who had certain behaviors, and we can learn from those. But it's not like they were intended to like, communicate. Well, if you ever find yourself in that same position, go across the you know, street and help the guy that got hurt. Be that good Samaritan. Right? It's, to some degree, yes, but it's more about communicating. This is a new way of thinking, a new way of understanding what God wants his people to be and what his perspective is for us as the new covenant uh, rolls out. Paul, his job was to take that and apply that in a practical way. Jesus was like, here's a new way to think. This is how things are going to be. This is what you to be like. Paul is, here's how we're going to do this, guys. Here's how we're going to organize a church. Here's how we're going to give roles to people. Here's how we're going to interact with the local customs and cultures. Here's how we're going to apply this teaching of love one another. What does love one another look like when it's applied to different individual places? And he had you know, a methodology of, I'm going to start a church. I'm going to move on. I'm going to start a church. I'm going to move on. Start a church, move on spread things like wildfire, and then he's going to write letters back to those folks to go, okay, I've heard you're messing up on some things, so here, let me re-guide you in those. And through those letters, we get to see what it looks like to take the definition of what Christ laid out, put into practice. It's a, it's a pretty common construct. Our BUILD series that we use commonly, it's called B-I-L-D, it's the name of these lesson series books that we use corporately or in our community groups. They talk about the kerygma and the didache, two fancy words that mean the same thing that I just sort of described. There is the message, there is the gospel message. Christ came uh, to die for our sins and to pave a way for us to be clean and be in heaven with the Lord. Uh, then there is the didache, the teaching that people uh, need to absorb and be given so they understand the behaviors of Christ followers. Um, you know, Paul did more for the behavior of, you know, the how Christ lived out their lives, and maybe even Jesus did, because he was the specific example of how to do it, where Jesus was, he was the why, he was the transforming element. Even our, our you know, church, the definition of kind of where our church is going in the end, kind of how Keith, Brett, and Ben, and I, you know, lead us as elders, 
if you go read that, and we, we talk about it in our trailhead class if you're in there, uh, it is broken up into who we are, kind of identity statements that communicate the things that we value above all other things, the things we all take damage for defending. We're under the authority of Scripture. We're free in Christ. Then there is what we do. These are the practical roll up your sleeves. How do we make it happen? Worship, gather, and give, and serve. We're going to do these things. It's, it's the same kind of breakdown uh, between these two. So use that mental picture be, because you can see what is trying to be taught sometimes more clearly if you understand, well, this is speaking to me, but it was taught to somebody else with a different purpose maybe than I have right now. In, in the Beatitudes, it's important to understand this is right at the beginning. These first you know, eight kind of principle statements that are stacked out there, they're the first things that Jesus says that are kind of recorded down as, as, as teaching. Um, you know, there are 11 verses followed by that. You look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, there is four verses on you're going to be, you know, the light on a hill, the salt of the earth, kind of to transform the Jewish people's thinking on this new, new covenant, this new thing I'm making is going to be more outwardly focused than inwardly focused. A big deal to what he was doing because prior to that, it was much less outwardly focused. But what he was bringing is now, let's start looking out. Then 60 verses of him essentially saying, I, Jesus, have come to complete the law, not to abolish it, but I've come to complete it. And that means we have to rethink the things that have been taught. So he talks through a lot of the Ten Commandments and how we need to see those differently, you know, how we um, view core doctrine statements. They're all in there. Um, you know, the, there's the commandment upon adultery. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you now that the new command is don't even think lustfully about a woman. That, that and many of those other things fill in those 60 verses that came after that, as well as all these kind of prominent doctrinal things. So that is the Sermon on the Mount. And today, you know, we're in this series, we're talking about uh, the Beatitudes, that first section of that. When I read those, um, and we'll get into this a little bit, you know, initially, I don't, I don't connect right away. They come, they come across a little intriguing, a little bit confusing to me, those first statements. The 64 verses after that, the be a light on a hill, uh, be salt and light, um, all the things about lasting treasure and not judging, you know, take the plank out of your own eye first before you take it out of your brother's eye. Those all make total sense. They, I connect with that. I'm like, okay, that's how I see all the believers that I trust and respect acting. Um, I can be those things. I want to be those things. I see the people in the early church living those things out. I connect with them. But those first pieces of the Beatitudes I'm like, ah, I don't see those things personified and lived out in the people quite so strongly in the New Testament. I mean, they're, you're going to be poor in spirit, you're going to be a mourner, and you're going to be meek. Well, you know, poor in spirit, like spirit's kind of, to me, as I use it, synonymous with like life and energy and vitality and motivation. If you're poor in that, you're kind of like, blah, yeah. Mourners, if, you know, if you're mourning, you are taking a time to sort of step back from normal life to deal with a hurt or a sadness and go through that process. During that time, these, these are the people that we should be caring for, 
not the people that should be focusing outward on us. You know, meekness, that kind of means weak and incapable of advocating for yourself. When you see like a meek character in a movie, they're the ones that like you kind of feel sorry for and pity. That's the, sort of your response to them when you encounter a meek person. You don't get the response of like, oh, that person motivates me. I want to be like them. They're, that meekness is just rubbing off on me. <laughs> it's, that's, not how, that's not how it, it, it goes. But yet, 10 verses later, Jesus is saying, those people who are poor in spirit, mourners, meek, and a few other things, you're going to be the light on a hill. You're going to be these things that influence people, but they sound like people that have no hope and capacity to actually influence folks. It's, it's intriguing. I, I read those things, uh, and, and if I'm honest with myself, I'm a little bit disconnected because I'm going, it's not me. In fact, I don't want that to be me. I don't, I don't, that's a personality type you're describing, not like attributes that I can learn. I, I can't, can't be like weak like that, I guess. It's, it's kind of the way I'm feeling, if I'm being honest. And, and it doesn't represent the people that I see and respect in the New Testament, in the early church, how they behave. People like Stephen, you know, in Acts, he gets up there and he preaches this message, man, just lays it all out, poking the religious leaders in the eye, left and right, like, you did this, you did this, Christ was here for this, you did this to our prophets, knowing that, like, people get killed for this. Jesus got killed for this, and he got killed for it. They stoned him, and he stared that down like, this is what the Lord wants me to do. Doesn't sound like a person that's incapable or needs to have you know be pitied. Um, also in there, there's John and Peter and the apostles. They were getting thrown in jail all the time for teaching the message of the Lord. One time they get thrown in jail and they bring them up and in front of people and they're like, "Hey, John and Peter, didn't you see that like killed Jesus over this? So what are you doing here? We gave you a chance, but now you're back and you're like even more energized." And, and John goes whether it's right before God to obey you rather than God, you decide, for it's impossible for us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. Kind of says, well, I know you put us in jail for this, but we're not going to stop. So just so you know, because we've already decided it's more important to do this than listen to you guys, so go for it. And they let him go because they don't know what to do. And then later they arrest all the apostles and they pull them in. You guys are teaching this stuff. Get in jail. Boop. And... The Lord like breaks the lock and they get free and they go out, they sleep it off and they get back up early in the morning and they're doing the same thing. And you know, the leadership like rounds them all up. And it's like, what are you guys doing? What are you doing this for? And Peter sort of says the same thing. He doesn't want to be like one up by, you know, the disciple that Jesus loved. He, he goes out there and says, hey guys, uh, like, like John was saying, the Lord has told us to do this. We cannot do otherwise um, and we're not going to listen to you people because it was your idea to crucify Jesus, so we're certainly not going to listen to you fools. It's, it's you know, paraphrased with sort of the tone that he probably said it in. And so they're like, oh, we don't know what to do with these guys. They're like putting us on the spot. We don't think it's going to work out well if we just like kill them all right now, so let's just get them out of here. So they let them go, and this is the good part. It says, they ran home celebrating that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. It does not sound like who I would describe as meek people. These are like tough people. 
like they're taking damage and celebrating the fact that like, yes, we did such a great job at like committing our life to Christ that like somebody punished us for it. That must mean that's evidence of us doing a good job. It's awesome. Paul also lived these things out like crazy. He was constantly taking beat downs. Um, not a guy that needed somebody to pity him per se. You know, gets bit by snakes while he's building the fire, shakes it off, and people are like, dude, you got bit by a snake. It's like, nah, doesn't even mention anything about it. Just like, I'm gonna keep going to what I'm doing. And so he, he actually writes this verse down in 2 Corinthians, and he's not, he's not even near the end of his ministry, and he says, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I received a stoning, Three times I suffered shipwreck. Night and day I spent adrift in the open sea. I've been on journeys many times in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, and hard work and toil through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, many times without food and cold water and enough clothes. Apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxious concern for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who has led to sin and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast about the things that show my weakness. First off, it's amazing that you can survive a stoning and come back, but he did. So those guys didn't do a great job with it. Um, but he, he took all of this damage, yet he's still talking about, I am weak. And it's, it's a little confusing because you see him and all, all the other folks in the New Testament, they're consistently living out a way that doesn't seem to personify meekness. They are courageously teaching the message of God. They are being punished for it. Um, you know, you see that also kind of in the Old Testament they call Moses weak or meek. Mo yeah, Moses, he's, he's a meek guy, yet he was the guy who got up in front of Pharaoh and was like the mouthpiece of God to distribute all of those plagues. Um, but it's the New Testament examples that are very intriguing because a lot of these folks either were there in person to hear Jesus say this. They didn't need me to come say, here's the context and how you picture things and here's what the words might have. They, they were there, they heard it firsthand. They saw his body language, they saw his nonverbal communication, everything that was going on around, they saw it or they talked to somebody who was there. Yet somehow it seems like a lot of the people didn't get the memo on these beatitudes because it doesn't seem like these very first few things that Jesus taught on are really getting personified and lived out. And that's, it's interesting. It's very interesting if you think about it. And of course, you know, you're smart folks. You know, you realize that, you know, this likely has to do with the fact that time and translation have not been our friends when we need to understand, you know, things like these beatitudes, things mean different things now. And more so than in a lot of places actually applies here in these Beatitudes. We talked about being poor in spirit, mourners, meek. It's almost like there's been this conspiracy to slowly water down and change the meanings of the words that describe these Christians to sort of paint them in a more you know, negative or diminished light. You know? Or maybe it's us. Maybe over time our behaviors changed, sort of degraded a little bit. And the definition of the words followed our behaviors more so than they stayed rooted in their original meaning. Either way, what we face today is we have a word meek that was selected back then to be the translation for this. That is, you know, wasn't a great, it wasn't great then and it has diverged since then. 
So if we, we kind of look at this timeline of left to right, like way back and in the future, here in the future we have, you know, dictionary definitions of meekness. You know, we can all go read those. It means gentle and submissive, easily imposed on, resigned, deficient in courage. That's a, that's a great one. It's a thing that we kind of say to insult people to some degree. Uh, internet searches are more effective now, so you can search on, like, show me all the publications and places in the media where uh, this word meek is used. And you go read those, and you get up to the minute, here's how we are using this term today. Not what the dictionary says, how are we using it today? And if you scrape away all the places where, you know, it's Christians talking about the same thing I'm talking about here, the word meek gets used in a very negative light. It is there to sort of uh, poke at folks, you know, you talk about oh, that sports team went out and sort of laid an egg. It was a super meek performance by the Pac-10 football teams against the Big Ten football teams or something like that. that that's sort of what it, what it means to us. It's, it's not something that, like, is it all good? There's some meaning in the dictionary if you look back and go, oh, yeah, it's, it's like the ability to take damage without griping about it is kind of what it means. Um, but by and large... Um, it, it doesn't mean anything like what the original word means, which you get if you go, you know, way back in history, um, you see, okay, this is B.C. times, long before Christ, Greek language, there's this word prehus, which was used here. And this word prehus is defined in a way, regardless of whether you're, you're researching it, determine, like, what did, what did Matthew mean here? Like, very biblically oriented, or just straight up, what's the, what's the Greek definition of this word? They all mean kind of something the same, and it's hilariously different than meek. It's hilarious. Actually, it means, essentially, the quality of a horse that has been taken from a state of being wild and untamed and unbroken and brought into control, where all of its power and strength and capability has been harnessed and made obedient through sort of discipline to its master. <laughs> That, that's what it means. It's like this super complicated term that like aggregates all that stuff into it. It means an expertly trained, super tamed wild horse. That's, that's what prehus means, and that is what um, Matthew used. I, I think that probably brings up like imagery of like, okay, yeah, we understand that. We're out west. We have like cowboys and western horse riders, and we know there's, there's discipline necessary to train your horse to get it to do you know, roping or barrel riding or all the things that, you know, they need to do uh, or like equestrian sports like arena jumping or dressage. You know, you got to train the horses as part of the sport to be able to do that. Uh, in, the, in the context, though, it, you know, there's a term back then that aggregates all that stuff into a single word, m- much more likely because training war horses back then was a big deal. So... You know, having a highly trained mounted military force in those times was like air dominance is to us today, right? It is the thing that you got to have if you want to have an effective military. If you got mounted guys who can use their horse as well, they can fight from that, you've got a huge advantage on the battlefield. So a lot of focus would have gone into that training horses, how to get the right horses, how to train your riders, how to like strike from a horse to maintain a defensive position and cause the most damage. That's, that's why there's that term. You know, my, myself, I, I, didn't, I didn't ride horses, but I got a lot of experience with horses because I grew up like on a horse farm, I guess you would call it. You know, if, 
It was in Pennsylvania. We didn't call it a horse property there, but if you were going to sell it here, you would call it a horse property on beautiful land in Senoida. That's kind of like how you would describe it. Um, and, you know, so I built the barn with my dad, and we built all the fences and did all the maintenance. I never did much of the feeding and such because it was my sister's thing. We built it to support her pursuit of being uh, a rider. You know, I know all about building, like, a beautifully made tongue-in-groove stall door that then gets used as, like, a chew toy and a neck scratcher um, <laughs> and all the things that horses do to wreck stuff that you've built. Um, but, she, you know... She, she was a horse rider, so I spent a lot of time around that. She's since moved up to Cave Creek in North Phoenix, and so she's a super accomplished amateur show jumper, and she jumps like fences that are ridiculously high, and she brings in horses from Europe and trains them. They're these magnificent, monstrous uh, animals that my kids just love to go and like groom and feed and, and do all those things. It's, it's awesome. They're, we were up there the last time, and she was telling the story about how one just like jumped out of the paddock like it was they were trying to figure out how it got out and they're like oh this thing can just jump so high it can just jump over the fence and so they're trying to figure out how to keep it in so these big magnificent things so my experience base with horses it's it's there and I have this opinion that they're just not right in the head most of the time horses are not right in the head and generally and maybe that's because the kind of horses my sister tended to have but by and large I think the more high performance a horse is the more nuts it, it is, right? Did you see that race the other day? Like one of the horses like bucked a dude off and it ran the race two times without him on there. And like it, it beat some of the rider, it beat some of the horses that had riders on there. Right? Um, and in, and in uh, you know, in show jumping, if you watch this on TV, they're like, part of the sport is not just getting your horse to jump over this super high fence, but you gotta have to do it amongst all these weird distractions they put like stop signs and colored funny potted plants up there and all this other stuff to like kind of scare the horse because you have to train them to go run at something that, that they don't know what it is. And horses don't like to run up to stuff that they don't know what it is. It's sort of their thing. And so that's part of being able to train them to trust their rider to gallop at this thing and go, oh my gosh, there's a stop sign. doesn't matter. I'm going to jump this thing. I trust my rider. And... Uh, Sometimes they don't. If you watch it, man, it's crazy. They'll like run up to that jump and go, stop with their hooves like this right in front of it, and the rider just goes, right off. That's why my mom like cringed watching my sister all those years, like getting chucked off of the horse as she's trying to figure this out. Um, so that that kind of gives us our frame of reference. So now picture you got to train these things to go into battle, into war, like Braveheart movie scene kind of battle where you're like cleaving at people, trying to fight folks. It's a completely insane melee of arrows and shields and screaming and confusion. There's dead dudes on the ground. Oh my gosh. It's like there's things out there that are like meant to stop the horses, like these funny wooden things. And there's blood and dead horses there too. You know what horses don't like? Blood. They don't like dead horses either, actually. It's, it's an animal instinct to run away from dead stuff because, you know, instinctually, if there's dead stuff around, you need to get away because you might become dead stuff too. So that, you have to train them really, really well, and you need a big, powerful horse that's probably got some, like, difficult-to-control tendencies, but you need that thing to be obedient and just on the spot with your commands so that you can go at stuff that they've never seen before 
and is um, just super distracting. Um, so those are that's that's the that's the term. It's this marriage of two extremes. It is out of control, brought under control, altogether. And if you kind of look at our little timeline thing, so on one hand, um, we have expertly trained horse, just about ready to lose control, but brought under control because of obedience and discipline. And then we have extremely weak person about to succumb to their own feebleness on the other hand. And so somewhere in the middle, we have what Matthew kind of translated down as what Jesus said, this pray word. We weren't there, so we don't know exactly what it meant at that time, but we do see how it was lived out. And the way it's lived out is what we see in the lives of the early church after. All the things that we described in Stephen, Paul, Peter, John, this like, I'm obedient to Christ and I'm going to do what he says, whether it's to be kind and gentle or put my life on the line. That's, that's what I'm going to go do. Um, those are the people when, it's, when Jesus is saying, they will inherit the earth. That is the image of the people that he's looking for to inherit the earth, the ones that are able to be the marriage of those two things. Paul's a great example of that. He really is. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. We kind of all know that story. He was very powerful, undisciplined, out of control, effective at stopping the early church, uh, persecuting Christians. He was there like part of the whole Stephen thing and has an encounter with Christ, completely transforms and brought under obedience. Does he become calm and mild-mannered and easy to be around? Heck no. He takes all of that power and energy and uses it in the way that Christ is channeling it to start the church and do all kinds of scary things under the direction of his master. That's, that's what that meekness is that we're talking about here. It's a totally different meaning, that prehus. For us guys, I can maybe depict it a little bit because it's kind of like the difference between a weak handshake, like a limp handshake and a firm handshake. It's not the same exactly, but it's similar. My dad was super adamant about teaching this because he was not going to be made ashamed by me not you know, shaking hands correctly. My son is getting the same joy right now and teaching for me. In fact, there's a lot of guys out here that have sons, and I'm like going to them like, Andrew, you need to teach Matthew and Noah that when I come up to them, I'm going to shake their hand good or they're going to get it from me. And we have those little packs. So when you're teaching them, though, you, it's important to go, okay, this isn't like, um, you know, this isn't like a strength test or trying to hurt somebody or intimidate somebody or you know, seeing whose hand is bigger or anything like that. It, it means a lot more than that, actually. It's, it's like, hey, I, I respect myself. I'm going to look you in the eye and respect myself as a way of communicating how I feel about myself and how I think you should feel about me. It's, it's an important thing. There's no like not looking people in the eye. There's no cowering in, in when two men shake their hands. If you like put out like sort of a limpy one like this, <laughs> and don't come up to me afterwards and do this to me because Keith Fisher did freak me out. But it's like saying, I, this is about all I got. So hopefully you don't need anything else from me. <laughs> Whereas if you have a firm handshake, it's like, hey, this is who I am. Just so you know, I got a lot more in reserve. So you just let me know if you need it distributed on someplace because I'm here. 
And in a way, it's, it is comical and good, and that's, a, that's actually a meaningful thing I really believe in, but uh, it, it captures it, right? It is not, oh, my only option is this because that's all I got. It is, I can do whatever you need. I can be a nice guy. I can be uh, domesticated, put on a nice suit and stuff, but I can also do whatever is necessary uh, based on whatever the need arises. That's, that's kind of what this meekness is. Um, if we go back to kind of where we started about the Beatitudes being a little bit difficult to understand, a little bit hard to connect with because you don't see it laid out, this is awesome. This makes it all make sense. It all comes together now because this thing that we have been talking about describes very well what we see, what we want to be. Uh, it describes the behavior of the people that we see who we respect. It is um, motivational. It makes it look like, oh yeah, these Beatitudes, even though they're talking about things that are, don't feel like me, it's, it's motivational. It's the, it's the beginning of great teaching and it's like power under control. I can be that. I want to be that. I'm motivated. Tell me more, Jesus. Tell me about what you're going to go do. That, that kind of puts it in perspective, and I love it because it makes it make sense. I love it when Scripture is difficult to understand, then you work to understand it, and it all comes to make sense, and you're like, God, you're amazing in your Scripture and how you find a way to pull us in and make us think and then reveal it and teach us through that. It just it, it makes it stick. We pull in kind of where Ben started us off in, in our message. He had this way of looking at the Beatitudes like, these aren't like individual options for sort of extra credit that are being laid out. Like if you so choose to be poor in spirit, then you're going to get this sort of extra thing. If you, if you choose not to, then okay. Uh, it was more like these are a pronouncement when taken together. They describe what the people who are living out the new covenant, Christ followers, will be and what we will look like. And, and not something that is, you know, a little extra. And that makes sense, right? These are the very first things that are recorded that Jesus says, so he's not going to, it's going to be significant. He's talking to his disciples specifically, and all the crowds, whether they were sort of up or down, wherever, they're out there. Um, and so, with that kind of meaning in place, we should be asking, well, if we're going to be meek, then how do I be the best meek that I can be? How do I do that? How do I make that happen? And I think it kind of starts with, well, kind of realizing that sometimes we tend to err on the side of maybe being a little watered down and ineffective because um, it can be a little bit easier, right? We, we, we don't always, like, harness that high-powered thing. You know, it, the focus should be, though, not necessarily on being out of control or being powerful. It is whatever Christ needs you to be, whether it is kind or risking your life, you're doing it under his obedience and you're doing it because that's what you're being instructed to do. The focus is on training and capability and obedience. I can be like hospitable and kind and nurturing and, and all those soft skills. I go to training like monthly on soft skills at work. I can soft skill people to death. I'm good at it. But realistically outside of there, I can do those things because if, that, if that's what Christ needs me to do, I'll be obedient and I'll do those things. I can do them. But it's not, well, that's all I can really do because I don't, I don't really have the ability to be uh, risky or courageous or do things that like require strength or toughness, just what the Lord needs for me at that point. We do really well 
even here, I think we do really well at those, those kind of maybe softer skills, right? We're great at welcoming people. We're non-threatening. We have a great uh, team that welcomes folks. If people need help and ask for it within the body, it's like, hold me back. No, I want to help them. Charge in and do those things. We have this great care team that's got a hair trigger on making meals for people. You know, heaven forbid that there's another church involved too that also wants to make meals and we have to like, no, we're making the meals. No, we're making the meals. We, we are good at, at those things. It's, it's like it should be. We're doing those things like they should be. I'm proud of us and it's good. Um, but can we really say that we're doing the things that require like, you know, kind of risky, powerful things to be brought under obedience? Do we, do we really do those things? Do we do the things that are, similar to what the early church folks were doing, powerfully speaking about their faith and the message uh, that Christ has given us? Are we out there putting that on the line? Um, I, you know, we're positioned right now in a great spot here at, at the Vail Church. We really are. We've got a lot of great stuff going for us. And you, know, you guys are awesome. Our, our congregation is full of awesome people. We've got great young families that are exciting and motivating and everybody wants to be around us. Uh, I would take a picture of you guys and put it out on the website like that and go, these are the people right here. They're great. We have great um, senior folks that are, you know, their population is growing and part of us now to where they're there to distribute wisdom that they've gained to the younger folks. We have super capable professionals who can basically just flat out get stuff done I mean, we can we need to build our own playground. We can do it. We need to, like, run our own finances. We can do it. We, we can do everything that we need because we have all the people we need. Our volunteer force, take away the full-paid staff, just our volunteer force, we could parachute these guys anywhere out there, and they can make a church. They can start a church anywhere because they can do it. Um, we have great staff that are super committed. We're, we're connected to all the right things. Hands of Hope, stuff that Andrea's talking about. We're good at those things. By the way, you know, Andrea has like bags that you can like get, just like our turkey thing. Just like that, right? Like people say, do you need turkeys? Buckets full of turkeys. So we, we are positioned well. We're connected to the right things. We're a great church. We're, we have a magnificent facility that's more and more at the epicenter of a growing community that's go through, gonna go through another transformational wave of growth. The opportunity's there. I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid that we're not positioned to capture all of it. And so that's the motivation today is what do we need to do in light of this teaching on meekness that's telling us to be? We need to be ready to use capability, use strength and power under Christ's discipline. Now, he's given us the command already, go spread my message to all the ends of the earth, making disciples of all nations. So he's already told us what to do. We're already confident that we should be doing this. Uh, so how do we do it? You know, the recipe is discipline training. It is commitment to prayer more than we're doing. It's commitment to studying and learning, reading our scriptures. It's commitment to practicing sharing our faith and getting comfortable with something that is inherently distracting. It's like the horse jump with the stop signs. Like, I feel like I can do it, but when I'm right there in front of it, I'm not ready to do it. And then people fall off, right? It's our... We have to train ourselves to be ready to be used by Christ to do whatever he needs us to do, even though he's kind of already said, this is what I want you guys to do. It's pretty clear in how we've been positioned on what our mission should be. We have 
There's a lot of us in here. A lot of us in here first service, a lot of in here second service, third service, you know, getting there. Um, But our capability to host classes and community groups, we're not even touching that. We could do tons more classes. We could do tons more community groups. As the need and demand rises, we will raise up more leaders and more teachers. Uh, The sky's the limit there. Um, So engage. Invest in those things. um, Because that is the key to being able to being ready to be used. You know, we've already been brought under obedience by Christ. He is our master. We're ready to go do it. Um, We need to be ready to do the things that he's asking us to go do. You know, the world, uh, and maybe my own fear, I think, makes me want to think, you know, like, oh, maybe I am, you know, when I fail. Maybe I'm the definition of the the word meek as the world uses it. Maybe maybe that is me, but not for long. It just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. Doesn't, it shouldn't work for you either. Uh, we need to be prehus, not meek. That's the thing that we should be. Um, and that's what I see in the people I respect. That's what I see in the people I want to be like in the early church in the New Testament. That's what I want to be. That's what I want the Vale community to see when they see us as Christ followers, followers of the new covenant. I want them to see that. Not that we are incapable, but that we are strong and bold we are energetic and wise. We can set our fears aside and be courageous. We do all those things in obedience to Christ. Do whatever Christ needs us to do. Some days he needs us to be mild and kind, and we can do that. Other times, he wants us to put it all on the line. I want to be able to do that too as a church. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for um, boldly teaching us to challenge us um, we need to be challenged, and, and you bring that to us if we're willing to uh, work and put the time in. So please reveal to us areas where you'd like us to grow, to push forward, um, and, and be ready to be used by you. Uh, thanks for all the things that we've been able to do here at the church and be involved in. Um, I pray that they have been pleasing to you and push us forward to do even more. Uh, Lord, we love you. Amen.